Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to the Sunridge Teaching Podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means that we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. We are gathering indoors right now, socially distanced and masked for now. We'd love to have you drop in. Just check our website, sunridgechurch.org, for the latest details on times and options. And now, here's our teaching for this week. We hope it leads you to encounter the way of Jesus more fully. That's worth coming to church, if nothing else, just to be reminded that God loves us. And I don't know where you're starting from today. If uh, maybe you came because your mom made you come to church today or maybe someone invited you, or maybe you're just searching for God, uh, and you're wondering, what does it mean that God loves us? Well, what it means, the way it was demonstrated, is He sent His Son to give His life for us. And I can't say that even as a pastor, or either full-time or part-time for over 30 years, that I understand all of that, but I cannot think of a way that a God who we can't completely understand could demonstrate how he feels about human beings other than becoming a human being and living his life for us and giving his life for us. So that doesn't bend your mind. You know, I don't, I don't know what will. I hope that you, that you can accept that today, whatever's going on in your life, that God loves you. If you don't know me, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to welcome all of you inside our building for another week and uh, on campus outside. And if you're watching online, we're super stoked that, you know, you decided to stay in your jammies and sit at home or and uh, drink your coffee. And so we're just really grateful uh, to gather in all these different ways as the church called Sunridge. Um, if you're a mom... Would you just stand right now? Yes, I want to applaud all the moms here, but I want you to stay up, okay? So if you don't mind, I'd like to pray a blessing on you today. Uh, My prayers aren't magical, but, you know, um, my mom has been gone for like a few years, and so moms are super special, and all of us here had one, have one right? So we all have that in common. And so I want to pray for you guys. If you have a mom that's here or you're related or anything, you know, I want you to put your hands on your mom. Stand up and and do this, unless she doesn't want you to. And, you know, no creeping out here, guys. Don't walk across the building because you're single and you're thinking, you know, you might meet a girl this way. This is about moms, okay? So we want you to put your hands on your mom, and if if you don't have anyone near you, we we don't respect your space. We know that COVID doesn't allow us to touch people we don't know yet, so we're okay with that. Uh, So let let me just pray for you guys, okay? And uh, if if you have a mom here, would you join me in heart and in spirit? God, uh, the women standing in this room... Uh, have one of the most amazing jobs in the world, raising children and being a partner in that. And I know that 
some that are standing here, that it's, it's been tough to be a mom. Maybe they're doing it on their own. Big shout out to all of our single moms here. God, I pray that your, that your grace would be especially present in their lives as they juggle all the being dad and mom. And um, there are moms standing that have lost their children. Um, there are moms that being a mom is not exactly what they thought. They have challenges with their children. They come in so many different sizes and shapes. Some of them are far away from their children. And God, you just, you just know everybody's story. And I pray that what, of, the, of the women that are standing here right now, that there would be something in them through your spirit that would let them tackle this job in whatever phase they're in in just a fresh and new way in your power. And I know, Lord, that there are women in this building that are, that are not standing, and that represents heartache, challenges in their life as well. We are so grateful that whatever our station in life, whatever has come at us, that we can claim, as we just sang, that you love us. You love us beyond imagination. And I pray that that would become more and more tangible and real to us, even in the trials that we face, even in the challenges that come. Would you show your goodness and mercy to the women of this church fresh and new ways. Amen. Thank you, guys. That's a really long prayer for me. Sorry you had to stand up so long. Like, you didn't mind it at first because you thought, man, he always prays short. Um, so we're in this uh, book in the Old Testament called Ruth, and one of the things that I've noticed uh, about myself and in talking to to many of you, it's like we often find ourselves identifying with people in the Bible, don't you? I mean, if you're a leader, you think a lot about Moses, or, you know, if you're in the middle of a challenge, or like, you know, someone's betrayed you, you identify with Joseph. But I've also found that lots of times we're, our connection's gender-related, right? And so I have heard recently from some women in our church that you're really loving Ruth. I mean, I, and, I, and I know why. Because you're seeing yourself in that story. It's a lot easier to insert ourselves into that story. And, uh, of course, we did Esther in the past as well. And so how, how great is it that it's Mother's Day and we're looking at uh, an incredible but ordinary woman in the Bible? Um, so if you haven't been with us, you know, the way this story is begins. It's like it's only four chapters in your Old Testament. It's tucked away right after Judges. And um, it begins with a family, a husband and wife, Elimelech and Naomi, and they, through the push and pull of the circumstances in their life, they find themselves having to immigrate to a foreign country, to Moab. There's a famine in their land in Bethlehem, and so they have to move where the food is. And uh, while there... Um, all the men die in their lives. Um, Naomi's husband dies, and then her two sons die, and she's left with two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And so circumstances 
create the need for Naomi to go back to Bethlehem because the food situation is better. And so she returns with just Ruth. And yet she's returning in a way that, you know, like it's not the life that she signed up for. She's poor. She's coming back childless with no men in either her life or Ruth's life. And in that situation, they're scrapping out their survival, and Ruth is going out and, and kind of doing what was the welfare system of that day in that area, which is that when they harvested a field, they were to leave the outsides, and if they dropped something, just leave it there. And the poor, an Egypt would come along and pick up those gleanings. And that's, that's what's been happening. And um, Danny talked about a couple of weeks ago how Ruth ends up gleaning in this field of a man named Boaz, and he's a man of standing. That is, he's he's probably been, uh, you know, had some military life in which he was a hero, and he's wealthy and he's a landowner, and um, so that's kind of where we left it off. And last week we just talked about. Um, Chesed, that word. Can we say that all together? Chesed, you guys remember that? Like you have a hair stuck in the back of your throat. It means loyal love. And it is through Ruth's loyal love that Naomi, who saw herself as empty and afflicted by God, she's starting to make a comeback. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. It said, one day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her daughter, She said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. So, you know, like on Mother's Day again, I'm going to try and make as many connections as I can. I hope it's not overboard. But like, you know, there's a really special relationship between Naomi and her daughter-in-law. They're not not, uh, blood relatives. Family's much more than that at times. And so they have a very close uh, relationship with one another. And, you know, Naomi was like in the pits, but somehow the way Ruth has been fiercely loyal to her and bonded with her, something's coming alive in Naomi. She lamented for a really long time, which is okay. When we're brokenhearted, we, we kind of have to sit and lament. But she's kind of picking up now. And so she's starting to look after other people is what you should see, not just herself. And in verse 2, now Boaz, with whose woman you have worked, is a relative of ours. It's an interesting word that she uses here. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor, wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Boaz doesn't have a chance. And Naomi here refers to Boaz as a distant relative. It's an interesting word for her to refer to him because it's not the legal word that you would normally use. This is more about the human relationship that they have with him. And she says, and when you go there, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, what is going on there? This is 21st century, Temecula Valley, there's a whole other thing going on in this story. Number one, you know, it's, it's tradition 
at this time, like at the end of harvest, to celebrate, to have like a big party. They thresh the grain and it's all piled up and they know that they're going to have food. So it like creates this joyous spirit. And so there's something about that tradition or something that, that Naomi knows what Boaz's um, habits would be at this celebration. It's probably all cultural. And she's saying to Ruth, you know, take advantage of some alone time with Boaz. Don't get ahead of me in this story, okay? The first time, this is going to be the first time that Ruth and Boaz are in the presence of one another without other people around, so they can talk more freely. And I think that Naomi is setting this up, you know, out of deference to Boaz. She's not trying to force his hand or do anything publicly. But she's also, in what she's exposing Ruth to, she's banking on this reputation that Boaz has as a man of of, uh, standing. I mean, because it is a night of eating and drinking and celebration, and yet she seems confident that he would not take advantage of Ruth. And the next move here is going to be up to Boaz, she says. He will tell you what you must do. He's going to tell you what to do after you do this thing. And in verse 5, Ruth says, I'll do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. And it's too bad we don't have Ruth's thoughts here, you know, a little more perspective, because, you know, you do see her willing to step into this incredibly dangerous situation. To say that she's brave would be an understatement. If you just Look at what she's been doing in order for them to survive, going out every day and collecting food and scrapping it out. And now she's taking what in that culture could be a physical risk, and it's certainly an emotional risk, what she's opening herself up to. Verse 7, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. And Ruth approached him quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now, you guys need to elevate yourself here. There's uh, no hanky-panky going on here, okay? And there's no indication that Boaz is drunk either, because that would be in violation of his standing as a man of standing. His reputation is strong, so he can be trusted. He's just satisfied. And he's in a good mood, as you would be. Like, and it's, like, it's like he's got all this grain, and it's been a great harvest, and it has to be especially poignant, given that they have a history of famine in the region. And so he goes to lie down, you know, away from the late-night crowd, which all of us who are over 50 can totally relate to, right? The youngsters can keep going, and at 9 o'clock, I'm in my jammies. I'm done. So Boaz is here spending the night by this giant pile of grain. Maybe, maybe he's protective of it. He's afraid that someone's going to steal it. Um, and it could just be that he just doesn't want to go home. Maybe he just, it's a cool night and a breeze is coming through. It's just a great night to sleep right there by what he considers his blessing, right? And when all is quiet, Ruth has made her way to where the unsuspecting Boaz is sleeping, and she uncovers his feet carefully, uh, the storyteller tells us, so she doesn't awaken him, and she just waits. 
And this next part could be something straight out of uh, America's Funniest Home Videos, right? Because in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. This would be shocking, right? Maybe, maybe he felt it. Maybe his feet got cold. I'm a feet cover. You, you know, some of you like to sleep with your feet sticking out. My feet got to be covered no matter how hot it is. Maybe, maybe I have a lot in common with Boaz that way. I don't know. But either way, he's startled. And this upstanding man of valor and respect in the community is awakened by cool air on his feet and a woman sleeping at his feet. This is totally shocking. And in verse 9, he says, what? No, he says, "Uh, who are you? I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. What? What is going on here? Who are you? I mean, he already knows her, right? He know, he's talked to her before. Maybe it's dark. Maybe his eyes are a little sleepy. He can't focus. He's so shocked. And um, here's where it gets really interesting because here's Ruth's response. Number one, she's identified herself as his servant, which is actually raising her status. She's not his servant. She, she's, not, she's not even at that level. She's just a person showing up looking for help. And then she kind of freestyles a little here, or maybe a lot, depending on how you want to look at it. Remember, Naomi's plan was, when you do this, he'll tell you what to do. Instead, she tells Boaz what to do. She said, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of her family. And that's a cultural thing. It's, it, based on my reading, in some very traditional areas in the Middle East, this still happens. It is a way of proposing marriage for a male to take his outer garment and put it on a woman. This is saying, I would like to marry you. This is a bold move by Ruth to tell him to do this. And in in one concise sentence, Ruth has mashed together two appeals from the Torah. The number one, number one, this is in your notes, the kinsman redeemer, uh, which is a male relative who has the responsibility to act on behalf of a relative in danger, trouble, or need. This is a uh, uh, your Bible might say guardian redeemer. It's the same thing, but it's a, um, it's a financial responsibility. In the Old Testament, family members would redeem the assets of a widow or someone in the family. It could include animals or land or any kind of property. They would step up and purchase it so that, it, so that those assets remain in the family. It's kind of like, like a house today. You know, um, It creates generational wealth, and they want to keep it in the family, right? And then the other uh, law that she refers to here or brings into the story is the Leveret law, and that required the blood brother, we've talked a little bit about this already, of a man who dies without sons to marry his widow. So again, women were taken care of by men in this culture, so you had to have a man in your life to make it, So brothers or other relatives would marry 
the widows of their family members. And that's, this is not a financial responsibility, although it has those implications, more of a human or cultural responsibility. And the need for sons is, is very important in a patriarchal system. So here's what happens. Boaz rolls over drowsily in the middle of the night, is confronted by a woman with two demands on him, like right out of his sleep. Number one, you need to take care of your financial responsibility. And number two, you need to marry me. That's what just happened. It's, it's hilarious and ridiculous today, and it was then too. It's also a huge risk because there's, this is the drama part of it. I mean, if this story hasn't been dramatic enough, Boaz is a powerful, wealthy, highly respected man, and he's being told what to do by someone who is a nobody. Ruth is totally out of her lane. And this is a moment of truth in the story. Have you ever had that kind of conversation or you've been in a situation where like, you know, you need to get something out on the table and then you finally work up the courage or you get the opportunity and then boom, you lay it out there. Have you ever done that? Um, that's what just happened. I, you know, like it's been many, 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 many eons since I was on a date asked for a date. I date my wife, but um, if, if I could just travel way back, you know, and if you're a young single guy, I'm about to give you like all the secrets of my life, you know, like, you know, you watch for the signs, you're like, you know, like trailing bait, looking for interest. You know how it works, right? Am I too old school on this? And then like, you know, like finally you're going to like put it out there. Like, so, want to go out, want to eat food, you know, the code, elf reference there. Um, and, and, you know, that's like the moment of truth. That's, that's what, what has happened here. How, how many women here, whether you're, you're like you're dating, you're in a relationship or you're married, how many of you like ask your husband out first? You were the one that asked them out on a date. Come on, put them up, stand proud. Okay. Okay, so you see how unusual that is for today, whatever is affecting that. Way crazy at this time, way crazy. And she's not asking for a date, right? She's saying, you should marry me. So what's he going to do? What will he do? Don't look yet. Okay, verse 10, new scene. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness, chesed, it's our word, Loyal love is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And we've noted before that Boaz might be, he's a little older, a little more seasoned. And what we see here is Boaz welcomes her assertiveness. That's a big relief in this story. Like at this, when he says this, if you're first hearing this story, you're like, a big relief. That was a super tense moment. And he immediately recalls her acts of chesed to Naomi, her mother-in-law. And he says, I consider what you just did even a greater act of loyal love, than, greater than even what you've been doing for Naomi. Because he says, I see you have other options. And yet she's trying to put something together, not just for her, 
but she's also, out of her loyal love, her chesed for Naomi, as we talked about last week, she's like asking this older man to marry her. And he sees how Ruth is not just looking out after herself, but for others. And he, super shocking to the audience at this time that he praises Ruth for being so bold, because again, she's out of her lane. In verse 11, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Now, note what just happened here, because evidently Ruth's reputation has traveled. Boaz is somewhat familiar with her situation and what she's doing for her family. And this phrase, woman of noble character, it's the same phrase used to describe him earlier in chapter 2. He's a man of character. She is a woman of character. Maybe, maybe Ari had his eye on her. Maybe he was checking her out. It, the story doesn't tell us. Um, but in spite of being an immigrant, poor, and a childless widow, he describes her as an, as an amazing catch and his equal, a woman of standing, a woman of great character. And this also shows the kindness of Boaz in this situation because he's detecting her anxiety in this this interaction. And immediately, he, does, he moves to affirm her. He tries to release that anxiety in her heart and her vulnerability. And he's saying, I'm going to take care of you. And in doing this, he is demonstrating something super rare in that day and this day that is a kindness for someone who is less than. That's what's happening in this story. And I feel like at that moment, it would have been appropriate for Tom Petty's, you don't have to live like a refugee to come on. How about that? Thank you for a few Tom Petty fans. At this point, we're all flying high in the story, but here's the next dramatic twist, right? Verse 12, although it's true I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another that's more closely related than I. That's how you feel when you read the story. I want to do this, but there's someone in line before me. So just a verse before, everyone's breathing this huge sigh of relief. This is, this is magical. It's going to come together, and yet there's an obstacle, and he could lose her. It's a wrench in the works. And, I, you know, like the story doesn't tell you this. The, the, the author doesn't tell us that. It's like the... Um, it's like all those murder mysteries or like every movie you watch that has, like they always leave one little bit of information out that they reveal at the end. It's like, oh, I could have I told the end if I'd have known that. That's what just happened to us. We, you know, we're thinking this is all going to come together, but there's someone else in line. But it ain't over yet. Verse 13, stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he, this other person, wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So at the same time that he's reassuring her of his feelings, uh, he is also a man of character. And he's saying, you know, I'm going to do the right thing 
the right way. Because he, he could manipulate this. But he's willing to trust Yahweh. He's willing to trust God with the outcome of this thing that they both want really badly. He's tempted to manipulate it, I'm sure, but he doesn't. And so in verse 14, she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, she pour, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. So what's happening here as that part of the story wraps up is that, number one, he's protecting her reputation. Number two, he's protecting her, her physical uh, wellness because he's not sending her home in the middle of the night. He's sending her home right as dawn is breaking. And then he's also providing for her even more. He's, he's gathered up so much grain. Did you notice he had to put the bundle on her? This is a sack of grain that she's taking back with her. And, uh, and that's not just generous but it's also like a generous act for her reputation because it gives her, if anyone would see her, it gives her a reason to have been there. She came to get grain. So it's their secret. And then this whole, uh, where we're going to cut it off is like she goes home and she's got to give the download to her mother-in-law, right? She's like, so? How'd it go? You know, you've been out all night. What happened? I'm trying to channel that mom's voice uh, from Fiddler on the Roof. Is it Golda? Yeah, it's like. Uh, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, uh, Naomi, he asked, how did it go, my daughter? She told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back uh, to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And, they, and then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So they're not out of the woods yet, but Naomi sees this as a good sign. So this, I'm just going to stop the train here, and I'm going to put a caboose on this story. We're going to pick it up next week. Jed has got such a great part to tell you about next week. So don't read ahead. Just like, just, just be surprised, okay? So, but a couple of observations, and um, I have a few minutes here. Uh, number one, Ruth, and this is in your notes, Ruth puts the fruit of hope on display. That's the first thing I want to draw. By that, I mean um, she, she has the fruit of hope in her own life, but she's displaying it to others. It's, and so it's being replicated in the lives of other people. This is the impact, hope. Someone who has hope in their life, this is the impact that it has on the people around them. We see hope coming alive in Naomi, right? She was empty, and now she's planning, right? She's, she seems optimistic. Just you wait and see what happens. This man is going to handle business. We could not be in better hands, and he won't rest until the matter is settled. That's the voice of optimism. It's a total turnaround for her. Why? Because of Ruth. She's living in such a unique way. And you know, Ruth and Naomi are facing incredible challenges in their life right then, many of which women still face today. Pam mentioned earlier infertility. Ruth is not yet a mother. And in that culture, it was what she would have wanted most 
more than anything else was to have a child. And mostly she would love to have a son. They're experiencing widowhood. Do you realize that even in this day, nine out of ten married women will spend time as a widow? Half of married women who reach the age of 65 will live 15 years longer than their husband. And 75% of women will be single when they die. Naomi has outlived her children. And patriarchy is like the cultural way. So life is not easy for them. But remember what Ruth said when they were on their way back to Bethlehem, what she said to Naomi in Ruth 1.16, when she was putting her foot down and saying, I'm going back with you. She said, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And what we're seeing right now is the fruit of that. That is not just a declaration of commitment to Naomi, and it's not just her conversion, which it certainly is both of those. It is also her worldview. It's a worldview that has her hope in God as its foundation and a fierce commitment to his people. She is living the greatest commandment that Jesus talked about, right? What is the greatest commandment? Love God, love people. That's what Ruth is doing here. And she looks at her life and experiences life through that lens. And it is contagious. But we need a solid theology of hope, don't we? Hope isn't just positive thinking or ignoring reality or fake it till you make it. Paul describes Christian conversion this way in Colossians 1.5. He says, The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about what you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world. Do you notice that this verse says that the hope of the gospel is a spring. It is a, it is a thing from which other things come. Faith and love. The hope of the gospel. If you're here in church today and you don't know what I mean by the gospel, the gospel is good news. The good news that we sing about, that God loves us, that God loves us regardless of who we are or where we've come from. Ruth lived with this kind of hope. It wasn't a fake hope. And it wasn't a fantasy hope. But it was a forward-leaning, confident, take-one-step-at-a-time hope that was founded on her belief in God and her fierce loyalty to God's people. She is living a life that she would have not, she, she wouldn't have written this script for her life but she's living it out through that lens. If you're a Christian, you have that hope. 
We have the hope of the gospel, but the truth is we choose whether we will live our lives on the basis of that. We choose if we will place our confidence in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have many, many options for the lens through which we will look at the world in our own lives. And we choose whether we will purposely live our lives with the hope of the gospel and that, and whether we will allow that to be contagious to the people around us. So one question, what would change about your Monday if you chose to live your life through that lens with the hope of the gospel as your central focus and the thing that you stood upon? When you wake up on Monday, your determination in your heart is that God is my God. And his people are my people. A life lived with a tenacious love and hope placed in God and his people is unstoppably contagious. And it doesn't matter what generation that we've lived in over the centuries or, or, well, we haven't lived through centuries. Maybe some of you have. I'm approaching that, I know. But... um, It doesn't matter what time you live in. The gospel is always portable. You can take it wherever you go, and it is contagious. And there is always something going on in the world through which we can live our lives with that perspective. What will Monday look like? The second observation is this. Ruth demonstrates how an image bearer is called to live unconventionally. Unconventionally. You see, the story here pushes the audience, this first audience, um, and and, and us as well, beyond conventional thinking. Ruth and Boaz cross lines, but for all the right reasons. They live in kind of a holy civil disobedience. Look at Ruth. When she identifies herself as your servant Ruth, that is a humble way of elevating her stature above who she really is in that culture. She is not his servant by any means, but she sees herself not through the societal lens that is placed on her, but as an image bearer of the God that she follows. In a patriarchal culture, she is exercising her full voice and influence on Boaz. And make no mistake, he is following her lead, and he will take his part. He will pick up the ball and carry it to places that she cannot go. Just wait till next week. You'll see that. And Ruth is calling out the best in Boaz to the highest level of who he is and what he's capable of doing as well. And together, Ruth and Boaz will form an unusual an unconventional but blessed alliance. In other words, they will be better together than they could be apart. She is his azer. Do you remember us talking about that in the series called Half the Church? The word that is used of Eve in relationship to Adam, that she is his azer. And you know, some of your Bibles say helper suitable, but it doesn't mean a, subser- a subservient 
helper. It's warrior. It's, it's a champion who stands side by side and fights with you. That's, that's who Ruth is being for Boaz. And you know, us guys sitting here right now, we have a bunch of Azers. We have a bunch of Ruths in our life, right? You got your mom. We have our sisters. We have our daughters. We have coworkers. You have a staff here of incredibly talented and gifted women. They are all gifts to us. Then look at Boaz, how unconventional he's being. He stretched the gleaning laws from the very beginning on behalf of Ruth and Naomi. And it's not necessary for Boaz to respond to Ruth as he does. He's under no obligation to do this. And by rights, he should have been offended. Who is Ruth to tell him what to do? He has every right to put her in her place. She is so far beneath him economically, ethnically, socially, and she's a woman. But Ruth, and Ruth brings nothing of value to this marriage, at least culturally. No wealth, no possibility of children at that point, or even social connections. For him to marry Ruth, that is not his circus, not his monkeys, not his obligation. Boaz is not a brother. He's probably just a cousin or something like that, a distant cousin to Elimelech. And the Leveret law does not require him to marry her. But he sees who she is, a woman of character. He sees her in the light of who God has made her to be. He sees beyond the, the trappings of his culture at that time. And there's no question in that culture that the men are the leaders, and Boaz is a great leader, but he is not threatened by her capacity to lead in this situation. And he's not protecting his position as a privileged, respected businessman in the community. He doesn't have to provide for Ruth or Naomi. There's a system for that called gleaning. And Ruth is able-bodied, so she can take care of business. Instead, Boaz is using all of his resources, all of his power and position to protect, provide, and serve Naomi and Ruth. And he will take it even further, as I said next week, when you hear from Jed. Each of them is going beyond what is expected. That's what the story is bringing out. Each is doing something surprising, unconventional. You could say they're finding loopholes. Loopholes for all the right reasons. And their unconventional behavior would definitely be noticed by the people who are reading this story for the first time, the people for whom it was originally written. And this is not about being different for difference's sake, I want to say. You know what? You know the phrase stuck in a box? You guys familiar with that? To be stuck in a box, you know what that means, right? It's always been done this way. It's like, you know, this is just the way, on one hand, traditions that we are given and cultural models given we, they're comforting to us. They give us a sense of purpose and stability, but those biases can also um, trip us up. They can create barriers to the way that we think. And they filter our world. They filter out things that we should see and they cause us to overfocus on things that we want to see. 
For example, the Pharisees were masters of tradition, but their traditions got in the way eventually, right? That's why Jesus said to them, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And you do many things by that. The Pharisees had good intention with all of their rules and structure and everything. But here you see people living independently of those cultural structures. And I think that that's a calling of all of us who are God's image bearers. We have, to, we have to live independently of what we're being told by our culture, even by our religious culture sometimes, by the pressures that are put on us. I know my time is short, so I, I want to wrap something up. Don't, don't try and follow me uh, on the slides right now. Um, Paul talked about how we, we, we cannot conform to the world. That means that there's pressure on us constantly to be a certain way and to think a certain way and to keep everything just so. But yet Paul says we have to rise above that and we're to be under constant transformation. You know that verse, those of you who have been Christians for a while, uh, you know, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's a constant thing. The transformation is something. Paul is saying be constantly under transformation. We have to be constantly transformed by what God is doing in our hearts. And that means living in a way that's separate from culture many times. We have to live counterculturally in that way. I'm going to ask the band to come up so I can wrap this up, but Ruth shatters our conventional thinking. Are they violating Scripture? No, exactly the opposite. They're fulfilling the intent of Scripture. And this story gives us fresh eyes. And it comes at us because it's in a story form. It's not like like the preacher standing up there going, hey, you need to do this and you need to do that. It's just a story. And so we can kind of sit back and relax. But what we see happening is a total churn of the cultural system at that time. And it's refreshing. Can you imagine what the story would be like if everybody just stayed in their box? I can guarantee you that following Jesus will keep you in a constant state of transformation, of looking at things unconventionally through the eyes of Jesus, through the eyes of the gospel, through the eyes of scripture, not through our cultural models. And when that happens, we have to let God push us forward out of our comfort zone to think differently than our day and time in so many ways because Jesus was the most unconventional person of all. And aren't we glad? Aren't we glad that he, instead of being stuck in a religious system that left people out, he was called the friend of sinners. What would Monday look like if we lived that out? Those of us that name the name of Jesus, what if on Monday morning I got up and the first thing that was motivating me was the hope of the gospel, but then also I chose to live unconventionally 
aware of the cultural pressures on me, aware of what's being said, aware of my own stubbornness and inflexibility. What if, like, I thought unconventionally through the eyes of Jesus? What would Monday look like like that? And how would God use us? And how much would our story change? And what impact would we have on those around us if we did? That's something to think about. Amen? All right, let's stand and sing together. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need help with something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. Or if you'd like to know more about us, just go to our website, sunridgechurch.org, and you'll know what to do from there. We hope you'll listen in again next week. But in the meantime, wherever you go, deepen faith, bring hope, and live love.